Thank you, Zach and Fred. You may know that uh, that yesterday marked the 78th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, as our president, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, said at the time, a day that will live in infam- infamy. Uh, and so hero stories were not in short supply on that day. Uh, there were many people who acted heroically uh, in the wake of that attack. Uh, Samuel Fuquay was a 42-year-old lieutenant commander on the USS Arizona. Uh, and after he had been strafed by gunfire and knocked unconscious by a bomb, uh, when he regained consciousness, uh, another bomb detonated the am- ammunition magazine on his ship, instantly killing uh, a thousand people. And like that, Samuel became the highest ranking officer on his ship. And uh, as the maimed and burned victims of that attack were pouring onto the deck, it was, it fell to Samuel to, uh, shepherd them off the ship calmly. Edward Winsliff, a fellow crewman, said this, I can still see him standing there, ankle deep in water, stub of a cigar in his mouth, Cool and efficient, oblivious to the danger about him. We love heroes, don't we? We love hero stories. Well, last week we uh, we began looking at a different kind of hero. We began. Uh, we're using this Advent season, the the Sundays here, uh, this Christmas season, to look at Isaiah's servant songs. Now you may hear that and go, Kevin, I have no idea what that means. That's okay. Isaiah is not a book that we usually traffic in a whole lot. Isaiah uh, was a prophet in the Old Testament. That means he was a a spokesman for God. Think a, a press secretary. If God had a message to deliver to his people, he did so through the prophets. Isaiah was one of those. He lived about 700 years before Jesus was ever born. And the servant songs are four prophecies, four predictions in the book of Isaiah that point forward to this mysterious person known as, wait for it, the servant. See it? Servant, servant songs. Pretty clever name. Um, God's servant. Uh, this mysterious figure coming in the future. Uh, and we don't ever get his name. Uh, and we get vague pictures of what he would be like, of what he would do. And so here's what we, here's what we picked up from Isaiah 42 last week. First, we learn that the servant emerges when things are desperate. The world is trapped in a darkness of its own making, and the servant comes to fix it. The servant comes to make it right. He comes to bring justice, to make right what is wrong. But he does this in a surprising way. When we think of a hero, when we think of somebody who's coming to fix something, uh, right? we think of muscles and guns or muscles and weapons. But the servant is described as someone who will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench the smoldering flame. He will not cry out. He won't uh, make his voice heard in the streets. Unlike many of our world leaders, he is no shameless self-promoter. He is no bull in a china shop. He makes right rather by lifting up the broken, 
by restoring sight to the blind, by leading the prisoners out of the dark dungeon. And finally, we learn that Jesus is that servant. That uh, he, that 700 years uh, before Jesus is born, Isaiah is actually seeing Jesus. And that Jesus used some of these same words to describe himself. That he understood himself to be the suffering servant. So today, we're going to look at Isaiah 49, and we're going to see a different dimension of the servant's work. And kind of, here's how it, here's how Isaiah works. Here, here's how these songs work. If you ever played one of those games, uh, where the pictures are jumbled up in different pieces, and you kind of have to slide them around to begin to see what it is that the picture is showing you. Well, that's what Isaiah is doing. Little bit by little bit, he's sliding the pieces, uh, around to their proper place so that we can get a good glimpse of the servant. And here's, here's what we're going to learn about the servant today. That God's work is slow, but sure. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Let's read Isaiah 49. If you're using the Bible there that's in the row, it should be on page 609. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Let's give attention to God's word. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified, or in whom I will display my beauty. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense, my wage, what I deserve with my God. And now, the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations." that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. That means they shall fall down and worship. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is the word of the Lord. He gives it to us for our benefit because He loves us. Let's pray. Father, would You help us? Help us to understand what it is that You're saying to us. Speak Your truth to us. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in Your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I... uh, I hated mowing grass when I was younger. I don't know, maybe there are some people, strange people who enjoyed it. But um, really, actually, I, I despised all chores. 
uh, because there were lots of better things that I could have been doing, like playing Super Mario Brothers 2. Uh, you know, and it always, it was always so hot, and it always seemed to last forever. Uh, in fact, there was, there was one time I even, uh, I, I learned that if it rained, I didn't have to mow the grass, because the grass was too wet for our mower to work. And so, uh, so one day I was, one afternoon I was supposed to mow the grass, uh, it was during the summer, my parents were away at work, I was supposed to mow the grass that day, and I had this bright idea to cut on the sprinkler system, and then tell my, tell my dad when he got home, like, man, it rained, I couldn't mow the grass, that's how badly I wanted to get out of mowing the grass. Um, I still had to mow the grass, by the way. Uh, the funny thing about water on grass is it makes it grow more. Uh, so then you have to mow it. Um, anyway, uh, but over time, as I've gotten older, that job has become less and less frustrating. Uh, and the reason is not because it's necessarily gotten easier or because the weather has gotten cooler. Right? Summer's still just as hot as it was when I was a kid. Uh, no, the reason that that job is actually desirable to me now is because I've taken on other more frustrating jobs. Right? You get it, you understand how this works. When you mow the grass, right, when you mow down that line, you can see very clearly what you have accomplished. Right? Nice, flat, smooth grass to one side, and all the stalks and sprigs and weeds sticking up on the other side. Right? When you mow, uh, it's, it does something in your heart, right? You kind of, you've kind of, you, you know that you have accomplished something. Which is so much more rewarding than what most of us have to deal with on a daily basis. Um, compare that with the other roles you play in life. Maybe it's parenting or teaching or ministry. That no matter how hard you work, it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, and that's exactly how the servant feels. You heard what he said in verse 4. I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength. What a great phrase. I've spent my strength. I've finished my strength. I've got nothing left. And I've done it for vanity. So, what we're going to see today is that God's work is slow and often difficult. But it is sure that uh, the servant very much understands what it means when our hopes and our dreams don't always square with reality. Right? When no matter how hard we look and we look around and we think, man, all I'm doing is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. The ship is still going to sink. Right? Maybe it's, maybe it's children that have rebelled. I've been, we've been in church for decades. I've, I've taught them everything. I've, I've taught them all the right things. And yet, they still walk away. Or maybe, maybe you've had opportunity to minister to and serve an addict. And just when you think they've gotten clean, once again they relapse and fall off the wagon. All that work and nothing but frustration. The servant king knows something about that. He too experiences frustration in his work. So I wanna, I wanna unfold our main idea under two, uh, two points. First, God's work is slow and unfolds through frustration. When she does, that's, a, that's an important 
concept to grasp because usually we think that if something is good, that it will come easily. But in this case, we see that God's work is slow and it often unfolds through frustration. And then, even though it unfolds through frustration, that God's sure work will mean salvation for the world. So let's, uh, let's unpack this, let's unpack this song a little bit more. I want you to notice the promising start. Uh, notice the promising start to the servant's ministry there at the beginning of verse, uh, of, of chapter 49, verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. This servant is set apart before he's even born. He set us, set apart for a special task. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, like a polished arrow, he hid me in his quiver. So this, this servant is God's special instrument reserved for a special task. What a pedigree. And notice too that the sword is not in his hand. The sword is his mouth. The mission of the servant is his message. He doesn't come to defeat his enemies with weapons of war, but with the, with God's message in his mouth. God even says of him, you are my servant in whom I will display my beauty. What a wonderful job this servant has. I mean, even before he's born, God names him, sets him to this task. He's like a, a special arrow. Uh, that God keeps in His quiver for just the right moment, and His job is to, is to display God's beauty to the rest of the world. Now here He's called Israel. This is the first time that He's named, um, and that can be kind of confusing. Is God talking about the nation of Israel? Is God talking about the people of Israel? Uh, and the answer to that question is no. Israel is not Israel in this Passage, And the reason I say that is if you look in verse 5, there the servant is called to gather Israel back to God. Israel cannot gather Israel. Uh, we're talking about someone else here who bears the name of Israel. What, what does that even mean? What is, that, what is all that about? So, um, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, God's people, had a job to do. They were rescued by God, God loved them, He saved them, and He set them apart so that they would reflect God's glory to their neighbors, to the nations around them, right? The nations around Israel were meant to look at Israel and go, ah, there's the true God. That's what a gracious God looks like. That's what a holy God looks like. But instead of displaying God's glory to the nations, Israel worshipped the gods of the nations. And they profaned God's glory. And so Israel failed at being Israel. God's people failed at being God's people. And so now someone else has to come along and take up the job. Someone else must come along and do the task and so God names this servant Israel. He will, he will be the true Israel that Israel never could be. He will be the servant for God that Israel never was. So he's off to a promising start, but then look what he says in verse 4. I have labored in vain. 
I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. That word vanity, when you, when you hear that, that's, that word comes up a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want you to think about, uh, I want you to think about smoke. Uh, smoke, it looks solid. Uh, some people are even so talented that they can like form it into shapes, right? And so it looks solid and real, like you could grab a hold of it. But what, what happens as soon as you do? It dissipates, right? It looks, it looks full of form, but as soon as you grab it, it, it vanishes. That's what, that's that word of vanity. So what's the servant saying? I've worked hard and nobody listened. I've spent my strength and all I've gotten is emptiness and empty wind. God's servant is rejected. His voice is not heard. He feels he has nothing to show for all the hours he's put in. Adoniram Judson uh, was a missionary to the country of Burma, what we know today as Myanmar. He knew a thing or two about the frustrating, slow work of God. Uh, He sailed to Burma in 1813, and he did so against the counsel of his friend William Carey, who was a missionary to India. Carey told him not to go to Burma. Uh, Burma was a hostile place. The people there had not heard of Jesus. Uh, It was a dangerous place to go. Uh, You... Not only were the people hostile, but also you had diseases like cholera, dysentery, um, malaria. And so, but Judson went anyway, and he took his wife of 17 months with him. And they worked for six years, six years before they ever saw someone come to know Jesus. Six years. He put his hand to the plow before anything ever sprung out of the ground. Five more years... And they were at a grand total of 18. 18 people who came to know Jesus in 18 years of hard work. To add insult to injury, in June of 1824, Judson was imprisoned uh, by the local dictator. Uh, they thought he was a spy for, uh, for the British. And so they imprisoned him. Um, and a lot of that time that he was imprisoned, he was uh, fettered in chains, and they would slide a rod through the chains and hoist him up off the ground. So he hung suspended in the air. Uh, and that was the case for 17 months. And almost daily, his wife, Anna, pregnant with their first child, would walk two miles to the palace to plead for his release. But he was released uh, 17 months later, uh, and then the following October, Anna died. Anne, excuse me, Anne died, and then their daughter six months after that. Now, maybe you would go home at that point. Uh, Judson, uh, what he did, he dug a grave next to his hut, and he would sit next to it. Uh, he would spend long hours in the tiger-infested jungle wondering what, why it was he was where he was. And he would say this, God is to me the great unknown. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Can you resonate with Adoniram Judson? I believe in him, but I find him 
not. You've poured out your life, and what you have gotten in return is not the result that you had hoped for. The fruit has not come up from the ground. Like I said earlier, you look at the the labor that you've spent and you think, all I'm doing is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Friend, you need to know that Jesus is no stranger to that feeling. He absolutely understands what it means to be frustrated, what it means to despair at the slow work of God. A heavy heart is not an unholy thing. If your Christianity does not have room for that kind of grief, then you need to go read Psalm 88. A heavy heart is not an unholy thing. I just want you to think about the life of Jesus. He was the King of Heaven. And He was born in a barn. He owned the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet He was laid in a feed trough. He preached to thousands of people. And yet when he died, not even his closest friend would admit to knowing him. He washed the feet of the friend who would sell him out to the authorities. Jesus knows what it means. On the the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus gets it. He understands the slow, painstaking work of God. He knows what futility feels like. But here's the remarkable thing. God brings salvation through that frustration. It is through the frustrated cries of the servant that God works out His salvation. Look again at verse 4. I've said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now, the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, in verse 6, it is too light a thing, too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. It's too small a thing that you should just gather back Israel to me. No, I will make you as a light for the nations. My salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In the midst of his despair, the servant does not give himself over to despondency, but rather he turns his face to the Lord. And as he turns his face to the Lord, God says, oh, you're going to do so much more than just bring Israel back. You're going to... You're going to preach salvation to the nations. The whole world will know me because of you. God's sure work, though slow, is salvation for the world. Look at what he says uh, to God. Surely my right is with the Lord. God will vindicate me. My work may be showing nothing, but God is my reward. He will... Uh, he, my, what I deserve will come from Him. Though I don't see any fruit coming up in the field, I will trust God for what I deserve. The servant sees futility in himself, so he looks to his God. He trusts the promises and power of God more than what his eyes can see. 
That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. To trust the promises and power of God more than what your eyes can see. Friend, Jesus had to do that. Don't don't imagine a Jesus who is immune to the frustration, uh, the frustrations and trials of life. Jesus had to trust his Father more than what his eyes could see. Because if he just went on what his eyes could see, he would have no measures of, of success whatsoever. You ever think, think about that? If we measure Jesus' life, if we, were, if we were trying to measure Jesus' life for success using our measures, so number of people attracted, impact of ministry, Jesus would have to be an absolute failure. Right? Not only did he work in the least important place in the world, uh, but again, he preached to thousands and yet nobody listened. And at the end of his life, right, he had 12 people who stuck with him the most and really a group of three that he had the most impact and none of them were to be found when Jesus was, when Jesus was put on trial. Right? If we were to look at Jesus' life with our measures of success, with our metrics, we would have to say, Jesus is an absolute failure. But Jesus trusted his Father more than what his eyes could see. He leaned into the promises of his, of his Father. And so listen to God's response to his struggle. He says, it's, only, it's, it's too small a thing for you to rescue Israel. You will rescue the world. You will be a light to the nations. And then look at the way his fortunes reverse in verse 7. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes will bow down before you. So the one who is despised and lowly will be exalted. In fact... The Bible tells us that Jesus has to be despised and humiliated. He has to go to the cross in order to be exalted. It's precisely through the servant's humiliation that salvation comes to the nation. If Jesus doesn't live and die as the servant, he is not our king of kings. Let's finish Judson's story. Adoniram Judson would eventually come out of his fog. And by 1834, he had completely translated the Bible into Burmese. That was his life's work. He completed it. And he would marry again a woman named Sarah. And they would have eight children over the course of 11 years. But Sarah also became deathly ill. And so they decided... Now, Judson had not been back to America, his home country, for 33 years. But because of Sarah's health, they decided to board a boat to go back to the United States. And as they sailed past the Horn of Africa, Sarah passed away. And she was buried on the island of St. Helena in a hastily dug grave. Now, at that point, maybe I would have given up. I would have said... Again, I'm, I'm now a widower with eight children. This calling is far too taxing. I have not seen the benefit of following you this far, Jesus. I think I'm just going to have a seat. But Judson 
took Jesus' words to heart in John 12, that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. And so Judson returned to Burma. And he worked for five more years. He married a third time. And after 38 years of working among the Burmese people, his body finally succumbed to illness. He was put on a boat to sail to the islands close by in hopes that the sea air would bring healing. But on April 12, 1850, Judson's strength was finally spent. And he died vomiting viciously. And his body was placed in a casket and he was buried at sea. For what? Is that a waste? Is that a waste of a, of a good leader, of a hard worker? Before his arrival, Burma had no known Christians. 38 years later, at one count... There were 7,000. And today, there are probably just under 3 million. God's work is slow. It is often painful and frustrating. But it is sure. Jesus knew that. And so he kept his hand to the plow. Now, why does that matter on a Tuesday afternoon? What do, we, what do we do with that? How do we connect the, the head to the heart? Uh, first, when things are frustrating and nothing seems to be working, trust God's view and not your own. Remind yourself of God's view for the world. His salvation is for the nations. Jesus spent himself to save the nations and his servants are meant to follow him with that same ambition. Paul, in Acts chapter 13, when he's being challenged by uh, the Jewish leadership, quotes this passage. He says, we're going to the Gentiles because God said his servant would be a light to the nations. Let's have Paul's view of the world, Adoniram Judson's view of the world, God's view of the world. But also when things are frustrating and nothing is working, trust God's view of yourself. It would be too easy to get inside your head and listen to that loop that only brings hopelessness and gloom. Listen to God's purpose for you. Lean into His power. Jesus laid down His life in what looked like a futile act. But it was not futile. We are sitting in this room because Jesus was that seed that fell into the ground to bear much fruit. And because of the tens of millions of unnamed people who have followed Him faithfully ever since. Trust God's view and not your own. It may be slow. It may, you may not see the results or the metrics that you think you ought to see. That's one of my chief frustrations. I wish that ministry were like mowing grass, but it's not. Or maybe it is. You mow it one week and the next the grass grows back again. 
Ministry may be more like pulling up weeds. Doesn't matter how many you pull, more seem to grow. And Roundup is no miracle cure. Just keep plotting and trust the one who laid down his life for you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would trust your servant. God, that we would not trust ourselves. That we would not despair, though we don't see what we think we ought to see. Though we are not enjoying the fruits of labor, though we may have children who have rebelled, though we may not have made the progress in the Christian life that we think we ought to have made. Help us to run to the one who knew what it meant to be frustrated. Who knew what it felt like to spend his strength to speak his words and to watch thousands leave in unbelief. Help us to trust that Jesus who for the joy set before him despised the cross and endured its shame. He has opened the way to life for us. May we walk in Him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.